Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In the last episode we considered the Passover night and how the death of the Egyptian firstborn secured the Israelites flight from Egypt. As we noted, the execution of Egyptians firstborn imitates Pharaoh's attempt to execute all of the Israelite male infants at birth. I also noted that Pharaoh's command to cast these infants into the Nile River appears to be a form of child sacrifice. Now we see a sacrificial element to the Passover night as the correct blood rites must be performed to forge the correct distinction between the Israelite and Egyptian firstborn. Let's read on now from chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen in all your territory." you will tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth with a strong hand. The Lord has brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So the firstborn belongs to the Lord. How is this idea tied into the Passover festival and Israel's flight from Egypt? Well, remember back in chapter 4 that the Lord charges Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is the substitution. The Egyptian firstborn will die for the harm inflicted upon the Lord's firstborn son, Israel. Of course, we see the fulfillment of this promise on the Passover night when the Lord slays all of Egypt's firstborn. 
We already noted that the Egyptian firstborn was substituted for Israel as their communal scapegoats. Once the entire community have vented their mimetic violence upon the Egyptian firstborn, they experience peace as Pharaoh sets them free and the Egyptians treat them favorably. The Lord purchases the Israelite firstborn for himself by emancipating his firstborn son Israel at the cost of the Egyptian firstborn. With this transaction in mind, the Israelite community look back on the Passover night and remember that the firstborn belong to the Lord. Although the Passover night brought much needed peace to the Israelites, the community cannot continue to execute the Egyptian firstborn every time a mimetic crisis breaks out. For this reason, a ritual is developed to achieve the same catharsis experienced on the original Passover night without massacring more Egyptian scapegoats. The Passover ritual, including the painting of lamb's blood on the doorways in conjunction with the festival of unleavened bread, serves as a reminder and ritual reenactment of Israel's bloody conception. To flesh this idea out, let's revisit the Passover instructions issued in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 to 6. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. From a mimetic perspective, this ritual reenacts the slaughter of the Egyptian firstborn on the original Passover night. Notice firstly that the congregation must kill their lamb on the exact same night at twilight and eat the whole animal that same night. This detail calls to mind the death of the Egyptian firstborn, which also happened at night. Second, the text commands that one lamb per household or a collection of households must be utterly consumed. The ritual of an entire family or a collection of families killing and feasting upon a single common victim reenacts the community's scapegoating of the Egyptian firstborn. It simulates the all-against-one rivalry as the scapegoat mechanism prompts the community to band together against a single surrogate victim. Third, the execution of the Passover lamb and the painting of its blood on the Israelite doorposts may signify the violent massacre of the Egyptian firstborn, as blood is splattered everywhere except for inside the Israelites' dwelling places. In chapter 12, verse 42, we are told that it was a night of watching or guarding by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept by the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. As future Israelite generations keep the Passover night vigil, they reenact that fateful night which secured their liberation from slavery. 
In the Exodus narrative, the slaughter of the lamb and splattering of its blood comes before the slaughter of the Egyptian firstborn and protects the Israelites from the Lord's violence. Here we have an example of a text which has been curated to hide mimetic violence. Gerard has argued that as myths evolve, they tend to replace violent acts with ritual reenactments of that foundational event. We may see some evidence of this process in the Passover narrative. Perhaps underlying the Exodus narrative as we know it lurks an older story in which the Israelites take to the streets and massacre the Egyptian firstborn in such a violent manner that even the doorposts of their houses are splattered with blood. As the Israelites stumble home following their night of violence, they smear the blood of their victims on the doorposts of their houses. Yet in time, this story has evolved to hide the Israelites' violence, projecting it onto the Lord, who is the one who kills the firstborn Egyptian, while the Israelites simply eat dinner with their family. So the Passover story, as we have it in our Bibles, may actually represent a later development of an earlier Passover tradition. The idea that the Lord was the one who passed over the Israelite houses and destroyed all of the Egyptian firstborn may be a later development in this story. And it's not completely untrue. The two stories are not incompatible. We've talked about the Lord as representing mimetic rivalry in this Exodus narrative. We've spoken about how the Lord is the one who inflames people's desires and motivates them to engage in conflict with one another. Blaming the Lord for the death of the Egyptian firstborn on the Passover night is simply another way of saying the Lord of mimetic rivalry animated, inspired and empowered the Israelite people to kill the Egyptian firstborn. Reading on now from verse 17. When the Lord let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But the Lord led the people round by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Ephim on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. As the Israelites embark on their journey towards a new society, the Lord, as the embodiment of mimetic violence, travels ahead of them, leading the way. This observation supports Gerard's idea that mimetic rivalry and violence forms the foundation of each civilization and culture. The Lord assumes the form of fire by night, depicting the effects of mimetic violence. From a mimetic perspective, this fire lights the way out of the darkness of a mimetic crisis as it inspires the community to band together against a common scapegoat. 
In this way, the fiery pillar represents the scapegoat mechanism upon which the Israelite society was originally founded. This same mechanism also protects the community from self-destruction as it lights the way out of future mimetic crises, inspiring the community to purge their collective rivalries upon a communal scapegoat. However, when the crisis has been resolved, the Lord assumes the form of a cloud, hazing the clear light of day as the embers of mimetic rivalry begin to smolder once more. By nighttime, these embers are fanned into flames as the mimetic rivalry escalates, causing another mimetic crisis. The fiery pillar once again points Israel's direction towards the lynching of another scapegoat, and the cycle continues. To stall this cycle, the Israelites must institute rituals and laws like the Passover ritual, which stifle the embers of mimetic rivalry within the community. The development of Israelite law, culture and ritual is the narrative which unfolds over the next three and a half books of the Bible. Let's read on now from chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hairoth, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them encamped at the sea by pi Harioth in front of Baal-Zephron. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. 
Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed him into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, that they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Again, mimetic rivalry possesses Pharaoh, prompting him to pursue the Israelites that he might snatch them from Moses' hand. The spirit of mimetic rivalry hardens Pharaoh's heart because he cannot watch Israel leave Egypt triumphant. He must pursue them. He must win. When the Israelite witness Pharaoh's rage, they are consumed with fear and begin to band together against Moses, blaming him for the crisis that they now face. But Moses manages to inspire the people to band together against Pharaoh and his army. You may have noticed that in chapter 13, we were told that the Israelites took armor with them as they fled Egypt. Why do they need armor? Why this detail? Well, I'm glad you ask. They need to don their armor now once more to defeat Pharaoh and secure their freedom. For this reason, the Lord commands Moses to stop crying out to him and mobilize his Israelite army. Of course, the more Moses and the Israelites are willing to stand and fight and defy Pharaoh, the more Pharaoh and his army will mirror their violence back to them. In the midst of this mimetic conflict, the Egyptians are thrown into panic and they decide to flee the Israelite army. Moses then stretches out his arm, commanding the Israelites to continue his slaughter and utterly consume Pharaoh and his army. Now hold on, hold on, I hear you say. The Israelites aren't fighting against Pharaoh in this story. The Lord tells them to stand still while he slaughters the Egyptians. Yes, of course, that's right. That's what we have in the text we've received. 
But remember how we discussed in the evolution of the Passover narrative, how we saw the Israelite perpetrated violence rebranded as divine violence. We saw the Lord blamed for the slaughter of Egypt's firstborn. We see the exact same process here as the Israelite community's slaughter of Pharaoh and his army is reframed as an act of the Lord. In the Exodus narrative as we have it, the mimetic exchange of violence between Pharaoh's army and the Israelites is symbolically portrayed as the divine manipulation of the Red Sea, or as it is literally translated, the Sea of Reeds. Now, some people like to point out this geographical landmark is more like a marshy swamp than a great ocean, but these arguments are missing the whole point. In the Exodus narrative, this otherwise rather innocuous sea of reeds becomes the scene of a fierce battle which sees the Israelite people slaughter Pharaoh and his army. The master storyteller graphically portrays this battle as a massive ocean. It's chaotic, it's it's teeming, it's foaming to and fro. And eventually the water is parted, allowing the Israelites to walk through on dry ground, while the very same symbolic water manages to drown Pharaoh and his army. We can't help but be reminded of Pharaoh's attempt to drown the Israelite male infants in the River Nile back in chapter 2. Now the Lord mirrors Pharaoh's actions back upon his own head by drowning him and his army in the Sea of Reeds. This image also recalls the creation account of Genesis 1, which portrays the separation of the primordial waters and the appearance of dry ground as a foundational act of creation. The Exodus narrative also reminds us of Noah, Israel's great ancestor, who survives the great flood of mimetic violence to walk on dry ground 40 days later. By employing this familiar flood imagery, the writer of the Exodus narrative describes the slaughter of Pharaoh and his army along with the Passover night as the foundation upon which the Israelite nation, its culture and religion were founded. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.